This is Vincent Williams and Lynn Webb here to talk a little bit about our upcoming screening of the overlooked classic To Sleep With Anger by director Charles Burnett and starring Danny Glover in what some say, well, at least Ernest Dickerson says, is his best role. And it's hard to argue with that. He's really good in this film as someone who is equal parts menacing and charming. He's charming because he's disarming with that devilish grin of his. And is it devilish or is it actually the devil's grin? This should be to sleep with anger, colon, the devil's grin. The devil's grin. grin. So we have all of this coming from the South, visiting this family and this community who have moved to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. A lot of atmosphere in this movie from the south comes all this gothic black magic voodooish type of spiritual misgivings and daring do all mixed into this urban landscape of a family gone fraught with drama and tension and into it walks this this beguiling Danny Glover character at their doorstep to just be twix and be devil and bemuse them all while and, he clips his toenails and also murders a chicken i buried the lead you buried the lead <laughs> murders the chicken. he also murders a chicken so hopefully you can join us yes on thursday august 22nd at the Bryn Mawr film institute for our screening and talk back of to sleep with anger. Welcome once again to another stop on the Michelle Mission. Two men, one podcast. Every black film ever made. My name is Vincent Williams, and I am joined as always on this journey with... Hey, what's up? Holla at your boy. This is Len, a.k.a. The Bat Tribble. And on this stop, we continue our journey on the Wayback Machine, stopping in 1953 with Gerald Meyer-directed film Bright Road, starring Dorothy Dandridge, Philip Hepburn, Maddie Norman, Robert Horton as the white guy. And introducing Harry Belafonte as the school principal, the choice of Lynn Webb. But before we get to that, we, of course, like to follow up with all of the feedback that we've gotten from each and every one of you in our Michelle Mission Facebook group, as well as on email, um, Instagram, Twitter, and all the social medias, as well as Vince Look, Jeff at Podglomerate would be happy. We've got more Apple Podcast reviews. More Apple Podcast reviews. We've got two more reviews. You guys are the best. We have a review from the Aaron Dujam. Hey, the, did you say uh, the or duh? The. The Aaron Dujam? I, I, I believe I'm, that's what... That's what it says here. Okay. Listening for years and love this podcast. Thank Five you. stars. Thank you. Started listening several years ago and wanted to write a review in support of the podcast as it is a worthy addition to any film 
or regular viewer of movies, especially movies with black or brown emphasis or themes. Thank you. Pat Donovan says, worthy listen, five stars. Thank you, Pat. What do Lena Horne's character in 1943's Stormy Weather and Optimus Prime have in common? (laughs) I didn't know either before joining the Michelle mission. Every episode has a blend of laughs, poignant critiques, and insightful musings on those black films we know and love and those we love to hate. A worthy listen for all ears. Imagine if every time Dorothy Dandridge... Or oh well, this is Lena Horn. Imagine if every time Lena Horn came into the room in uh, Stormy Weather, they start playing "You Got to Touch." <laughs> it would fit though. It would fit. I wish she was alive today, <laughs> just so she could walk out on some on some talk show. And they could play that. So you got to touch as her theme music. I could see her looking like. <laughs> That's right, baby. That's right. After all is said and done, you never walked, you never run. You're a winner. Wow. (laughs) I didn't go that deep into the lyrics. Hey, I don't really mess with the Michael Bay movies, but my brother is five years younger than me, and he was deep into the Transformers. Hey, man. Which meant that, like, he was like 11. Yeah. So I was 16. This that was meant, his jam. At, which meant I took him to the toy store. I took him to the movies. I did all this stuff. Like, I remember sitting in the movies going, I know they're not about to actually kill Optimus Prom. And then they did. They did. Yes, they did. And I was in a theater filled with children, scarred for life. I know, man. I know. the And, like, for all you people who only know the live-action Transformer movies... You need to look for the original Transformers right, movie. Right, right, the cartoon. The animated Transformers movie. Because remember, he was like, you know, he was red and blue. Yeah. But then he died and he turned black yes. and gray. <laughs> All the colors. I was like, up. this is horrible. This is harsh. <laughs> this is harsh. It's like, Mom, when I die, will I lose, will I lose my color too? This is real hardcore for an 80-minute commercial. Right. <laughs> it's like, whoa, I thought we were just trying to sell toys with this thing. Well, thank you, Pat. And well, toys, it's old. It's, it's old toys. Yes. It did. It's true. Um, so, yeah, thank you for all of you yes, who gave us appreciate a, that. the um, Apple Podcast review. That really helps. So Absolutely. Thank you, one and all. All right. Um, in regards to last week's episode, which was the Binge Lounge, yes. where we talk about sitcoms, George Kimona, as always, listening on SoundCloud. Hey, George. He um, was responding in time. So let's see if we can figure out exactly what he's referring to. Okay. All right. I'm going to go. I'm not going to give you the timestamps, but I'll go in in order. Okay. So at the top, he says, Earn that money, Jeff. Earn that money, Jeff. I don't know who we were talking about with Jeff. Not sure. Okay. But but we're pro money earning. Yes. So yeah, earn it, Jeff. Pictures of Vince's hand gestures can be found in the <laughs> Facebook group. 
That's right. Pictures of Vince twittering his hands. You can find in our Michelle Mission yes. Facebook group from our time at Blur City Con. The funny thing, I had buffalo wings the other night for yeah. dinner. And my whole family just sort of looked at me because I really did do this kind of intricate exercise with the napkins and all. And then, you know, I ate the rest of my food and then I said, okay, now I'm going to eat these buffalo wings. That's what you got to do. So my hands are about to be saucy. Like, now my, <laughs> like for the next 10 minutes, understand we are entering Vince's hands are saucy time. Got you. So <laughs> epic. Uh, let's see. The next he says, hey, a Spock adjacent uh, could be some filler. Now, what he's talking about, we were talking about maybe right spotting in some episodes of the show. Yeah. To make sure that one that episode 200 hits in February hits in February. Yeah. Well, I have news for George and all of our Star Trek fans. OK, because once again, Okay. Vince and I have made a vow to do Spock adjacent monthly. Yes. So there will be a new Spock adjacent monthly out there for you. And once again, Spock adjacent is available as its own podcast. That's right. Right now. That's right. You can look, look it up on Apple podcasts, on Spotify, on Stitcher. It's right there. Spock adjacent, all of our past shows are there, including the most recent one. Yeah. Where we reviewed the news coming out of um, Comic-Con. And we're going to be doing one a month. We even announced what the the next one is going to be at that on that episode, I think we said it was going to be about the the cartoon, the animated series. That's right. That's right. So that'll be coming your way in a couple of in a couple of months, a couple of weeks. Here's a question in in, on the feed. Is it that? Do you have that episode of the Binge Lounge, like the very first Binge Lounge where you and I were talking about Star Trek? Oh, did I put that? Did I put that on? Um, on the Spock adjacent? Yeah. No, I didn't. Well, but I didn't think we were talking like that heavy about Star Trek. No, remember the the one that we did about the movie, and then you and I were arguing about the episode. Oh, the, like oh, th- this was you talking. Are you talking about the one where you say the people in the movie are too pretty? Yes, that is actually on the Spock okay. adjacent. Okay, that is on Spock adjacent. Like everything we've do- like everything we've done. Because remember, Trek. remember. We did a very special episode of Black Tribbles where we um, put together our own right, the ultimate crew. Ultimate That's crew. Right. That's right. That's also on wow. Spock So it really is a clearinghouse for all Everything things. Star Trek. All right. I like that. Yes. So, like so that. look up Spock adjacent yes. on the podcast catcher of your choice, ladies and gentlemen. And you can... Um, you can subscribe to that. Give it a ranking and a rating. Give us a ranking and Help a rating. Help people in Star Trek Help find our little Star show. Trek find that little show. Because um, it'll be monthly until, you know, uh, yeah. next 2020. And and we were talking about industry stuff before we start taping. You saw CBS and Viacom merged. Well, they remerged. Remerged, rather. Yeah. 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 Um, that's pretty good. That's pretty. I wonder what that's going to mean for well, CBS All Access. I think it's going to keep on. I th- it it might open the door for for enterprise on TV. Star Trek on that TV. Yeah. You know what? I like Star Trek being kind of on streaming. 
okay, well, I do, but I also like it on like like I like people having access to it on television. I like people having access to it, but my fear of it, especially because CBS, even as they dip their toe into the 21st century mm-hmm. world of of media with their streaming service, is still very much an old school network. Very much so. So my problem with Star Trek is that if it were to hit the networks, mm-hmm. it would be subject to ratings. And I like the idea that they don't have to worry about that. It would not bother me if they had a straight up enterprise flagship show on CBS. Well, if they did, I'm tired. We don't need enterprise. It doesn't need to be anything yeah. enterprise. You, you kind of do. No, you don't. I mean, That's if, why it's good on streaming. If you're doing Star Trek, no, you, you don't. need something about the enterprise. No, you don't. You know why you don't? Because you've got Picard. And as much as you are in the bag for for um, Enterprise and some people still fondly remember like yeah. the original series and that original crew and right. everything like that, nobody really wants to see them reboot it yet again. No, even no, no, in no, no, movies no. I'm not television. even saying a reboot. I'm saying like just do a show up like, I don't know, the... Whoever is the is the captain of the Enterprise after Picard. You don't need it to be you, but no, you don't need Enterprise. What you are giving the people that the hardcore Star Trek fans right now, right, especially now in 2019, their their quote unquote original series love is with next generation. Right, but if you want you, if you want to build a new generation, which that's is why you that's why you've got discovery. Well, discovery is streaming. And, and that's fine. And if I'm 13 or or If you're 13, you've seen discovery. Well, Let's be real. No, you if you want to see discovery you do, but if you're 13, you have to discover discovery. And unless your parents subscribe to CBS, you're not going to stumble on it. Like there aren't reruns there aren't like it's it's a version of the comic book argument we've been having for 30 years mm-hmm. about comic books in 7-Elevens mm-hmm. like you need to have something that the casual fan mm-hmm. or or someone who's open to being a casual fan can kind of trip over right like I'm flipping and I see it and it catches me and now I'm watching it and the thing about having CBS access being the only real venue to get Star Trek, like like I'm thinking about the in local, the United States, right? What I'm thinking about the local cable here in Philadelphia. I think they show they show it on BBC America sometimes. You see reruns, yes. and one of those stations, like MeTV or something, shows the original series. They show the original series, but generally, the point of access has more gates than um comfortable with as somebody who wants to grow Star Trek much like Star Wars has grown Mm -hmm. where it's just you know it's just a self regenerating machine at this point Mm -hmm. so but this is a conversation let's table this we'll table this for Spock and Jason we've got a whole show because I can see you and I are about to have a conversation (laughs) so let's table that and for the record, I'm noticing I'm doing a lot more of this lately. 
trying to keep us on path. Like, that's your job to keep us on path. I was about to move on. Uh-huh. Go ahead. But you already said right. it. It was right. time. All right. Because your producer's coming out Right. Now. I was that's about to it say. Uh-huh. It took three years, right. but your producer is coming right. out. <laughs> Moving on. Moving on. Um, where was oh I was still in George Camonas. Yes. All right. His next line. His next line is, episode two hundred should be a live show. I was actually thinking about that today. That's not a bad idea. For our episode for our episode two hundred to be Let's a talk live about show. It. I'm open to it. Let's talk about the, the logistics of it. And as, pref- as much as I love Amalgam, I would love for it to be at a bar. Yeah. Um, yeah, let's talk about that. Oh, and I have a place. All right. Uh, he then st- says, I still sing Happy and Peppy. Yeah, I'm not sure what Not a clip. I'm not sure what that's about. Next, Freddie can't get any love with her crazy hair. He's talking about Freddie. Oh, yeah. From Different World. Here's the problem. With, Summers. Here's the problem with Freddie. For like two years, they dressed her in potato sacks. That's true. They like put her in potato That's sacks true. and then wrap ribbons around them. That's true. <laughs> it was like, what? What is ha-? And then, you know me. Like when Freddie came on, Whitley was actually an apex predator. Like she came on the second and third season. Like this was Whitley at her deadliest. Mm-hmm. And then I think it was like the fourth or fifth season, they started giving Cree Summer clothes that fit. Mm-hmm. And she was like doing little stuff. And but you know by then, well here's the thing. Now, now like this, everyone had broken up into their camps. Like you were Whitley dude or you were Kim dude. Here here's the thing that I, I will say about dude, of course, being non gender specific. Of dude, course, you know. He, here's what I'll say about Freddie. Um, when she came on, I liked her immediately. Mm-hmm. I just liked her character. She right. was evanescent. Sure, she was, she was all that. Absolutely. Um, and you know. Not for nothing, Cree Summers is a very striking woman. Very attractive woman. Exquisite. Again, when she's not wearing a potato sack. Well, no, even in her... You would see her in interviews and stuff, and she was like... Even in her potato sack, she was still crazy gorgeous. I thought she was super desexualized the first couple of years. Perhaps, yet it it was still making its way with me. Okay. What happened in my case... Because I was still noticing Kim. Yeah, oh yeah. I don't, I couldn't tell you the episode, but there was an episode where Kim walked into like, you know, like they had that all commons room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where everybody congregated. She walked into that scene. And I remember it because she had on like one of those, like almost like, um, country girl tops mm-hmm. but that pulled off the shoulders yes so her dark brown shoulders yes. were showing and i have a thing for dark brown period but dark brown shoulders oh yeah and i was gone for the rest of different world i'm telling you by the time Cree summer came into her own the the game of throne houses were already established so it really was like, oh, yeah, oh, look at Chris Summer doing her thing. George also let us know that ER was the closer for Thursday nights uh, in the time of um, Cosby. And that may be true because I, when I said. I thought Cosby was on before ER. Yeah, but it may. It, ER, like Cosby ended in 1992. Yeah. So it's possible 
that ER was like the closer, like in its last last few years. Last few years, okay. You know what I mean? So that 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 kind of that kind of works. Okay. You know what I mean? Um. So and I and there was something about me when I said Hill Street Blues, I was like, oh, Hill Street Blues maybe was a, a little, little older. older, yeah. Um, but I know Hill Street Blues was followed by L.A. Law, right? And I think L.A. Law may have been more in the in the run of that. I'm not sure, but anyway. George was not the only one that hit us up with a little um, correction. Mm-hmm. Uh, Markham Lee. Hey, Markham. Said that Ma- Martin started the fall of 92 after the Cosby show ended in May of 92. And Living Single started the following fall in 1993. Sure. Family Matters ran during ABC's Friday sitcom block. None of those shows went head to head with the Cosby show. The Simpson is the show that gave the Cosby show competition. I don't think any black shows went head to head with the Cosby show. Literally head to head. But we, t- I mean, we were saying, you know, it's kind of figuratively. That's true. You know, and I do remember. Like we talked about Erica Alexander obviously was on. Yeah, we kind of like single self-corrected yeah. ourselves in yeah. the midst of that. It was funny when he mentioned The Simpsons. I do kind of remember the doctor on The Simpsons. I don't know how much you oh, were Dr. a fan. Oh, Dr. Hibbert. Dr. Hibbert. Yeah. He was basically a Cosby he, clone he because was, he would wear like the multicolored right. sweaters. That's right. There, There was actually one or two pretty interesting articles about what should the Simpsons do with Dr. Hibbert post what happened with Bill Cosby? Oh, like yeah. just in the past couple of years. I'm, I, I'm not even sure. Is he even still on the show? I don't watch I'm, the show absolutely. anymore. I mean, I, I'm not a Simpsons person, but it's a cartoon. Like everybody's there. Although I think Apu might be gone. Yeah, I think they kind of like uh, Apu phased him yeah, out. Mm, he, was, he was a little rough. Uh, yeah. uh, Dim Sum says no Dim one Sum, was. Dim. Dumb enough to try to divide the black audience, but it's worth noting that when Living Single got the axe, it was still the top-rated show in black households. Oh, that's interesting. I do remember reading that, which is why a lot, it kind of took them a lot of them by surprise, right? When they got out, uh, well, axed. there's there's an interview floating around was floating around this week with Essence Atkins. Mm-hmm. Talking about half and half, okay, getting canceled when I guess it was the WB and the CW merged mm-hmm. or whatever the merger was. Yeah, that's what was the merger. And and she talked. No, it's WB and UPN. WB and UPN, and then they became the CW. Right. And she talks about how all of these black shows were highly rated, mm-hmm. but got canceled. Yep. When when the and so that they could get white shows, but. This has been the formula with these startup channels since Fox. Like, they all do that. Well, certainly, I remember WB did it. UPN did it. Right. I don't remember Fox starting up with black shows. Fox had... I a, mean, they had In Living Color. Right. They did it with In Living Color. They did it with... um. Of course, now I can't think of anything else. But I remember this is a conversation that started with Fox. Okay. I feel like Steve Harvey has talked about this. Well, Steve Harvey definitely was like one of the things that right. kicked up uh, WB. Right. I believe they were on the WB. Yeah. 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 It, it is very much a formula that yeah. happens. And then you kind, of, you kind of move away from that demographic. I mean, arguably living single got caught out like that on Fox. Mm-hmm. Like when Living Single went away, 
I don't know how much of it was they don't have the ratings anymore. Yeah. It, 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 the shame of it is, and, and, and I don't know, I'm not even sure they know, so this is all maybe a little bit of speculation. Sure. But Living Single, which followed Martin. Right. And Martin, which after his second year, was on a, started a pretty steep decline with all of the issues that were happening behind the camera. Right. And I, for some reason, as Martin started wearing out its welcome, I think Fox more or less used that as ammunition to just do away with them. But you're saying wearing out its welcome. I don't know how much Martin dropped in the ratings in its target demographic. Well, that's true. Like, People, I didn't like Martin. Yeah. You know, you didn't like Martin. And not after this first season. You know, it's yeah. not it's not controversial to say Martin really just sort of fell in quality after the first season. And then, you know, I argue that the first season is is all um urban legend. But I don't know how much generally the general public, if you will stopped watching Martin. Yeah, okay, maybe they didn't stop watching Martin, but as the stories of the behind the scenes issues became started bubbling up and became and started making their way onto the screen, you know, him and and uh I mean, Tisha Campbell that wasn't until like the last season. Well, I mean, but it it hurt the last season. Like, they literally could not be in a scene together. I I 100% don't believe anyone at Fox gave a damn about these black people not getting along Mm -hmm. as long as the ratings were right. Okay, maybe not. Because as much as you hear about that goes on on shows with the same type of thing, Mm -hmm. and don't nobody give a damn as long as the ratings are right. Okay. It's just they weren't the ratings with the demographic that they wanted. You could be right. So, you know. Speaking of corrections, Mike Zablinski hit hey, us up. Hey, Mike. He said, I hate to be that guy. Never hate to be that guy. <laughs> no. Vince has made a career of it. But <laughs> in the Men in Black commentary, which up, which is otherwise excellent as one would expect, I can't believe you guys made a huge faux pas. Oh, my goodness. What did we do? By placing MIBHQ in Brooklyn. But given that you're Philly guys, I guess we have to make allowances. It is, in <laughs> fact, located in lower Manhattan near near the site of the World Trade that's, Center. That's a huge error for New Yorkers. <laughs> yes. Yes. But it is it is an honest mistake yes. because the building that was used um, um, visually right. to mark the men in black headquarters. Sure. Is in it is in fact I believe located in you know Manhattan, but it is called the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel Ventilation Building. Sure. So it's an honest faux pas to believe that that might be located in Brooklyn. Okay, fine. You know what this this version of for me? What I, one of my favorite things since I've lived in Philadelphia. I like periodically watching Philadelphians have a little meltdown talking about the the running the, the training sequence in the first Rocky when he's oh, jogging. He's jogging. And how it's actually geographically incorrect. It is. Where he was running. 
And I love how y'all get real worked up over it. <laughs> how is he an Italian market? And then he's on the steps. And then he's wherever he is in y'all. So it's like, yeah. Well, look. <laughs> it's a huge error. Here's the, th- Here's the thing that Philly people have to appreciate. Um, and it, it came to my mind recently in 2019 in the movies that because of how prevalent New York and even parts of Los Angeles, but even more so New York. Yes. All boroughs of New York. Yes. Have been seen in s- movies since the beginning of movies. Yes. And especially dating back to the 50s when they, you know, Hollywood would go on location in movies. Right. Absolutely. In, in New York. You know, there are people who've never stepped foot in New York that kind of know, right? The, you know, where the streets connect, right? And things like Just that. Just movie geography, right? Yeah. It ain't that deep with Philly. No, it's not that deep. Case in point, Shazam, the movie that yes. just came out this yes. spring, is set in Philadelphia. Yes. And there are maybe three scenes that are filmed in Philadelphia. Yeah. Famously at the um, at the art museum, mm-hmm. the, the Rocky Stairs. Of course. And I believe there's a couple of other scenes that are filmed in and around the Center City area. Okay. Other than that, the rest of the movie was filmed in Pittsburgh. Okay. With their own do-it-yourself septa signs right that basically said septa stops that you've never heard of sure sure and nobody cared nobody cared yeah nobody cared yeah because philly we it ain't that deep unless you're talking about the training sequence from the first rocky well because <laughs> they've got to have one i was about to say that's y'all one right there that's your hill that's that's y'all one right there of all of them, that's the that's the hill that's the hill that they will die on. It don't even make sense. <laughs> the way he's going, it don't even make sense. All right, let's touch on a couple of uh, news items before we get into our movie review. Okay. Uh, have you seen that there have been? Um, you know, we talked about Eddie Murphy has apparently put the wraps on the Dolomite movie. Oh my for god. Netflix, I know you can't wait. Oh my god! Did we talk about it last week? No, we did talk about it. We have talked about it. He's now moved on oh my god. to the Coming to America sequel, which has now uh, had two new casting items. They cast Tracy Morgan. <laughs> yes, is going to be joining joining the roster. Yes, he is. Of the Coming to America movie, along with returning stars Eddie Murphy, um, Arsenio Hall, James Earl Jones, John Amos, John Amos, Sherry Hetley, Sherry Hetley, and the- Vanessa Bell Calloway. Vanessa Bell Calloway. Yes, I, I believe that is exactly how you say her name. Yes, it is. Because <laughs> the thing about Vanessa Bell Calloway, she actually fawner in 2019 than she was in the original movie. She's a very good woman. Very good looking woman. Uh, Tracy Morgan 
is going to be joining Wesley Snipes, Leslie Jones, <laughs> yeah. and Kiki Lane as new cast members of this movie. Good for you, Kiki Lane. And they've also announced that the R&B singer uh, Rotomy. I don't. I'm not familiar. I'm not familiar as well. But he w- has also been cast in an undisclosed role for the coming two, coming the number to two, America, America, which is set to um, go into production very soon, right? And set to hit the theaters in, I believe, in December of next year. Fair warning: if we go to a preview or you and I see it together, if there's not a Randy Watson scene, I'm going to burn down the entire theater. So just get ready. Like if the credits roll and I have not seen Randy Watson, just find yourself an exit. Maybe he'll be in a stinger. Maybe he'll be in the stinger. Maybe. Maybe. So, you know, hope springs eternal. Yes, it does. So you're excited about Tracy Morgan joining the. um... (sighs) I am. It feels a little stuffed. I don't. Sure. Sure. Why not? I'm trying not to be too excited about coming to America. I really got hit with a one-two punch the past, really a, a one-two-three punch. Mm-hmm. Did we talk about that that interview from Playboy that's been floating around from 1990? No. Like they excavated a 1990 interview with who? With Eddie Murphy. Okay. And just it just I've all and I know I've said this before. Mm-hmm. In my mind, the worst thing that happened was Eddie Murphy getting caught with the prostitute. Oh, okay. Because it embarrassed him, so he stopped coming out. Right. I think the Eddie Murphy interview is a performance in and of itself. Like, I love Eddie Murphy interviews. And this was a 19, like, one of those classic Playboy interviews where it's like, 15, 20 pages mm. of the guy just in, and it's just Eddie Murphy in 1990, which again reminded me how much I love Eddie Murphy. I'm not a regular viewer of Jerry Seinfeld's show, Comedians, was it Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee on Netflix? Yes. But the Eddie Murphy episode was fantastic. I didn't see that it one. It is absolutely fantastic and hilarious. And Eddie Murphy tells a story about Sammy Davis Jr. Mm -hmm. in Devil Worship that I said, I want this to be an entire movie. Like, I need an entire My Dinner with Andre type film about Eddie Murphy's dinner with Sammy Davis Jr. Okay. And then, like I said, the Dolomite. My name is Dolomite. Like, I've watched, I, I just watch it. Like, every now and then, since it came out last week, I'll just watch it. Mm-hmm. Just as a little, just just as a little spark of happiness in my day. Gotcha. So I'm very open right now to Eddie Murphy's stuff. Although you kind of do the math, and coming to America doesn't seem like it should work. But I'm optimistic. Well, I'm reading this interview you're referring to. It was an interview that took place with Playboy, as you said, from. Uh, 1990 and playboy asked him you could have directed coming to america but didn't yeah why yeah and Andy murphy says i wanted to help out uh john landis who was the director i figured i'd give this guy a shot because his career was effed yeah but he wound up effing me yeah what happened well as it turned out john always resented that i hadn't gone to his twilight zone trial that's right 
I never knew that. I thought that we were cool, but he had been harboring it for a year. Every now and then he would make little remarks like how, how you didn't help me out. You didn't realize how close I was to going to jail. I never paid any mind. Do you think he was guilty? I don't want to say who was guilty or who was innocent, but if you're directing a movie and two kids get their heads chopped off at 12 <laughs> o'clock at night where there ain't supposed to be kids working and you said action, then you have some sort of responsibility. And and just a little background, those of you who don't know, John Landis directed the Twilight Zone movie. Right, from the, um, from the, the 80s. 80s. Right. And, and two people died. Uh, three people. Because it was two kids got their head and then the, the, the stunt... Guy died as okay well. three people died right. on, on on the set and john landis was sued yeah yeah uh like i'm gonna say don't read any more of the interview like i'm giving y'all an assignment missionaries i'm putting it in, i'm putting it in a facebook right. group read the entire interview oh so you don't want them to read this that sir because i mean this is no no read right oh the john landis story is bananas yeah but the whole interview is like that him talking about Elvis, him talking about Arsenio, talking about, you, you know, getting married. Not, I mean, just all of it. So. Yeah, check that out. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah, it's fantastic. Eddie going in. Eddie got problems. Uh, let's see. What other story can we touch on real quick? Um, a Soul Train musical has set its sights on Broadway. Yeah, that could be good. I'm looking forward to that. Maybe. Let's see what happens. Aiming for a 2021 premiere, a new musical inspired by the long-running music and dance variety television program, which showcased black music and culture for an audience of millions, will center on Don Cornelius, the former disc jockey who created the show in 1970. Three prominent black women in contemporary theater will form the core creative team. Dominique Morisseau, of Ooh. Skeleton Crew and Pipeline fame, a 2018 MacArthur Grant winner, All right. is writing the script. Camille A. Brown of Choir Boy will chore- choreograph, and Camilla Forbes, the executive producer for the Apollo Theater, will direct Quest Love, hey. a.k.a. Amir Thompson of The Roots, is an executive producer alongside Tony Cornelius, Don's son, uh, Sean Lee and Devin Kudell. The Soul Train, which left the air in 2006, played a significant role in bringing the music and dance of Black America, particularly R&B, soul and hip hop, into the cultural mainstream, featuring guest musicians like James Brown, Aretha Franklin, and Marvin Gaye. Arguably, the program is best known for the Soul Train line. Soul Train performances line. by in-house studio dancers, many of whom had their careers kickstarted by appearing on the show, including Rosie Perez and Carmen Electra. I would have included Shabadoo from the Rockets, better known as Ozone, but I didn't write the article. You did not write the, this article, uh, Vince, which is straight from the New York Times. Yeah. So you're excited for the Soul Train musical? I'm potentially excited. I I think it could be good. Yeah, I thought. Yeah, it could. Be. I mean, it's going to be a musical. It's yeah. going to. It's. I think it's going to be. It all depends on one the music rights. Exactly. That's what it depends on. Exactly. That is exactly Which what it depends on. Has got to be a rat's nest. Ooh, depends on like who they're trying of to get. Contracts and, and yeah, you, you know, because you're talking about Soul Train. You're talking about movie, the music of the 
70s. Yeah. So you're talking. Right. That's the, the apex. Peak Stevie Wonder. Yeah. Earth, Wind, and Fire. Yeah. Aretha Franklin. Yeah. You know, some some James Brown. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, You know, maybe you throw in the Jackson 5 in there. Commodores. Commodores. Stacy Fire. Like, that's like. Like disco, you need a team of lawyers for everyone that we just named. Donna, you got to get some Donna Summers, Rick James. Yeah, yeah, and you've got to have a Soul Train line, and you got to have a Soul Train line. And even if you don't have Shabadoo, you've got to have somebody that looks like Shabadoo. If you don't have Shabadoo, you need someone who looks, who can channel the spirit of Shabadoo. <laughs> yes, yes, let's channel. Maybe we can open up Shabadoo's chest and take the Matrix out and give it to Hot Rod. So he can become Hot Rod Dew. See, that's a callback to our earlier, uh, yes, to our earlier conversation. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. You see what I did there? I saw exactly what you yes, did. did. Hey, Vince, did you see that Netflix released new images for their upcoming superhero coming of age drama, Raising Dion? Yeah. The Michael B. Jordan produced film will be released on October 4th. Excuse me. It's a series. I'm really pulling for this show. So am I. Yeah, I'm pulling for this. Um, Raising Dion, which centers on the story, is based on the comic book by Dennis Liu mm-hmm. of a young um, black woman um, raising her son Dion, who has superpowers. Yeah. And raising him to be a superhero. Yes. Um, there's a trailer that's available on YouTube. It's also available in our, our Michelle Mission Facebook group. It uh, the trailer is from 2015, and the the um, the property was optioned like right away. The yeah, same, oh, like yeah. the trailer was for the the promoting the comic book. Yeah, and just from that, it got optioned. Yeah, and now it's it's made its way and it's going to be on Netflix. Yeah, this fall, I'm really looking forward. to Yeah, that. yeah, me too. That sounds real dope. Um, and a little piece of um. History from Catrice Greer. Hey, homie. Did you know Noble Johnson founded one of the first black-owned film production companies in 1916? I did not. It was called the Lincoln Motion Picture Company, and it produced films with the black audience in mind, while black audience were otherwise ignored by mainstream Hollywood. The funny thing is, I just saw a reference to him. I, I, I forgot which one of the missionaries sent us that Oscar Michelle biography mm. last year, but I'm, I'm reading it now. Like I just started reading it and, and I'm at a point where, where Oscar Michelle is starting to go to the movies. Okay. And he mentions going to a black movie. And you can find out all interesting tidbits like that in the Afrocentric films collaborative, which is actually a website on, um, that you can go to Afrocentric films, you find all types of information like that. Excellent. So that's pretty dope. And thanks, Catrice. Yes, for thank you, Catrice. Sharing that with us. And other Netflix news, Vince, are you a fan of the Netflix original series Mindhunter? I am not. I know what it is. I, I just don't watch it. It is a show that is a, about the early days of um, the FBI developing their serial killer profile agency department Mm -hmm. within the FBI Uh, and the second season which 
just premiered August 16th on Netflix deals with the Atlanta child murders. Oh, okay. Of the of the 80s. Um I just finished it. It's 9 episodes. Good stuff? Oh, it's some very good stuff. Okay. I I fell in love with the first se- first season. Okay. Um it's a slow burn of a show okay. because it best, it definitely is a talkie. Right. But it is very very good. And you know, 9 episodes you can yeah, you can knock them yeah, out. Okay. You can All knock right. them Excellent. out. Excellent. And shout out to uh, local comedian Keith from Up the Block. Hey, Keith. Who from up has the block. A, a, a very small, but if you know him, noticeable cameo in a couple of episodes. Excellent. Good for you. So it was good seeing him there. Uh, last bit of news, Vince. Are you excited about this new comedy that's going to be coming out, I believe, in this fall called The Weekend? Excited is strong, but I am interested because I really like the cast, or at least I like three of the cast. And then one of the one of the guys I've seen him before. Mm-hmm. Like I think the fourth guy, I, I think he was in Little. It's directed by Stella McGee, stars Sashir Zamata. Yeah, who I like a lot. Tone Bell, Dewanda Weiss, yes, uh, Wyland Knoll, and Kim Whitley. Right, and who's what's the who, which one is the brother from from um, Insecure? Play Daniel. Yeah, play Daniel. The the one that um, the one with the arms that that Ariel Johnson couldn't get enough of. Uh, that's uh, Wyland Knoll. Yeah, I like him a lot. Yeah, and then the other male cast member, like that's I said, Tone Bell. I think that's the same brother that was in Little. And if not, I've seen him a couple of places and I like he him. He was too. in Little, yes. Yeah. So I like the cast. Mm-hmm. I like the cast. What, did, did you like the trailer? Because the trailer, while good looking, I mean, it, was, it, it didn't... I mean, it was a little boilerplate. It didn't hit me. Like, like I don't know how much... I don't know how much it was supposed to hit you. Like, like well, it, I think it was supposed to be funny. I mean, it was just fun. Again, it was, it was pretty boilerplate. Like, it looked like the type of trailer... That people like Kate Hudson in like a movie Kate Hudson or Matthew McConaughey were in all throughout. Fair point. The early 2000s. Fair point. And nobody really goes to see those movies because of the trailer. You just kind of like them. That's true. And this is black people. Like arguably it was refreshing that nobody was, I don't know, quoting Beyonce or doing some type of syncopated dance or. Good point. So yeah, fair point. But I like the cast. Yeah, and I'm, I mean, I'm interested in seeing it. I'm, yeah. I'm gonna go check it out. You know, give it, and I just like it that it's another, you know, uh, uh, woman director. Yeah, getting a shot. Yeah. So I will go and support that as right, well. Right. Right. Uh, speaking of women, last thing: Are have you been watching the Black Lady Sketch Show on HBO? I watched the first episode, mm-hmm. was a little a little underwhelmed by the very first episode, but everything I've seen since then mm-hmm. has been a hoot. Including their little uh, riff on the 227 reboot. Uh, uh, did you see it? I did, did watch it. Did you watch it? Yes. Then, to me, that captures it perfectly. Like, it was, it was like, the, 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 the skit itself was kind of, oh, okay, and and what's her name does a nice um does a nice uh um, um Jack A Jack A imitation. Yes. And I was like, oh, okay.
okay, that was kind of cute. And then it got surreal and bizarre. It did. And I said, okay, I see you, Black Lady Show. Yeah, so I'm rooting for that show. Me too. Me I, too. I am rooting for Me it. Me too. And another show, I like everyone involved. And finding out that Gabrielle Dennis is funny shifts some things. <laughs> I was like, how are you funny too? Like, she's got so much going for her. And you're funny, too? So, excuse her for being funny, hey, man. You know I like a funny woman. That's not like a funny woman. So, you know. Um, and I will say on this recorded line, you have a a a, a wife with a great sense of humor. <laughs> yes, I do. I'm sorry. I, it just hit me. Right, right. That. Hey, I love funny women. You do? Yeah. There you go. All right. It's time for us to get into our review, but not before we invite you, uh, ladies and gentlemen, to, you know, George Kimono was talking about us doing a live show. We're doing it live this Thursday, Thursday, August 22nd at the Bryn Mawr Film Institute. Vince and I will be manning a very special screening and talk back of To Sleep With Anger, Charles Burnett's drama from the 80s starring Danny Glover and Cheryl Lee Ralph. It promises to be a great time. Hey, my sisters are coming. They don't come to anything I do, but they're coming to this. So that means we're going to have a whole lot of fun at the Bryn Mawr Film Institute this Thursday, August 22nd. You can go to michomission.com to find out all the information about how you can get tickets and directions for our live event. Let's get into our review of Bright Road. We'll be right back with our movie review after we step to these messages. Ladies and gentlemen, we are honored to bring you a sensational new star, Miss Dorothy Dandridge. Here I stand again, about to beat the band again. Feeling grand again, taking a chance on love. Take my chances on love. But there is another Dorothy Dandridge you haven't seen until now, a wonderful, emotional actress who brings to life on the screen the fascinating woman who captured your hearts in Mary Elizabeth Broman's Christopher Award story, See How They Run. I'm Dorothy Dandridge. I play the role of the teacher. This was my first day, and I wasn't sure how it was all going to work out. This is Philip Hepburn, who plays C.T., the boy who never did see much sense in going to school. And this is Harry Belafonte, who plays the part of Mr. Williams, the school principal, who found C.T. the most difficult boy he'd ever known. But it wasn't punishment that C.T. needed. It was love, a love like Tanya's. And Tanya is played by Barbara Sanders. Of course, C.T. never let on that Tanya occupied a special place in his heart. Critics have said, 
Bright Road is the most unusual motion picture to come out of Hollywood in the past 10 years. One of the memorable highlights of this outstanding film is the simple yet wonderfully beautiful music of Harry Belafonte. Listen. Come dear, I pray my train will come Someday I pray my train will come When I can go back Where I come from Bright Road, a 1953 film directed by Gerald Mayer based on the short story See How They Run by teacher Mary Elizabeth Vorman is the story of first-time teacher Jane Richards, played by Dorothy Dandridge, who is troubled to learn that one of her students, C.T. Young, played by young Philip Hepburn, has a history of taking two years to complete each grade. Although everyone else has given up on him, Jane resolves to get him through the fourth grade on a normal schedule. Gradually, she makes some headway, only to watch C.T. backslide when a friend and fellow student, played by Barbara Ann Sanders, suddenly dies, an event that caused me to text Lynn in the middle of the day, (laughs) and Lynn didn't text me back. (laughs) Jane, nevertheless, refuses to give up. Bright Road from 1953, again starring Dorothy Dandridge, Philip Hepburn, and introducing... Harry Belafonte mm. was the choice of Lynn Webb. And what say you, Lynn Webb, of Bright's Road? Well, I will say a couple of things about Bright Road. Okay. First of all, if you go into Bright Road just based on looking up visuals for the movie, and when you do that, generally what the first things that come up when you look up visuals for a movie is usually the movie poster. And if you go into Bright Road based on the poster of the movie, it's very misleading mm. because the poster of the movie has a picture of Dorothy Dandridge in basically an evening gown <laughs> looking like she's either stepping out on the town or she's in front fronting a band belting out some big musical number. Right. Right. With um, Harry Belafonte's. Uh, head just off to the side looking on in bemused attraction at Dorothy Dandridge. Yes. Putting together and bringing to your mind a scene which not only never (laughs) appears in the film, there's never any inclination that there's there's no club at all. She does. There's no inclination that she owns another piece of wardrobe, right? Besides the rather matronly school teacher outfit, she's a school marm that she wears in this movie. Yes. So that's very misleading. Okay. Um. That being said. Mm-hmm. Once you go into this movie, you realize that Dorothy Dandridge is very much, she's the star. She's the figurehead of this movie. She's, it's upon her star power as much as it was in 1953. Right. 
uh, is upon which the movie is made. Dorothy Dandridge was, you know, well established in Hollywood at that time, but hadn't had any role leading roles. Right, because this is before Carmen Jones right. and Porgy and Bess. Right, with the movies which would catapult her to stardom. Right, but she was still known. She was a known entity in in Hollywood. She was a pretty black woman mm-hmm. who could sing, so you could put her in in. in a lot of movies uncredited as kind of like the black singer off to the side. Right. And then she, and she was in tons of movies. That's how she, you know, buttered her bread from the forties until now, 1953. But once you turn on this movie and you really lock in on it, her aside, the real star of this film is young Philip Hepburn. Yeah, as C as the young child C T Young, who is the story tells you is a troubled youth who is having trouble getting through grades. Took him a number of took him multiple times to get from through the first, the second, and the third grade. And now he is finds himself in um in Dorothy Dandridge or the teacher Jane Richards fourth grade class trying to get through it. So you you're heard you're told that he's a troubled youth, but as you're introduced to him, you realize, well, where's the trouble? Because he comes across as a very inquisitive, intelligent young boy. Mm-hmm. Um with there is a light there is a bright light within his within his eyes. He's inquisitive. He is skeptical of certain things. You know, um, there's a throwaway line about in New York, the cities are as high as the sky and young by one of his um, classmates. And CT is quick to like kind of scoff at that because there's no buildings can be as high as the sky. Right. It's true. Right. He's just talking in facts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you watching this now from 2019 eyes, he's not a troubled kid. He's just a kid that's probably a little bored. Right. He's just a kid that maybe, you know, he's a, he's maybe a, if you're really testing him, he's above what's being taught here. Right. You know, um, that's all that's wrong with CT. But in the vernacular of 1953, in a all black school where you know you might even wonder okay what level of education are they receiving right at this all black school this seems kind of like set in a semi rural um situation mm-hmm. um what's the level of of schooling that they're all getting here so you question all that going into the movie Philip Hepburn didn't do much else, this young actor. Mm -hmm. But if he only, you know, so that means his acting career, you know, begins and ends for the most part with Bright Road. Yes. That's not a bad notch to have on your resume. No. Because he is, he is, he is uh, captivating in this role. I immediately, like like this kid want to know this kid's story Mm want to know so much more about what's happening to him in this story um i actually watching this movie one of the things that was bothering me is that 
I think because they are building Dorothy Dandridge's character up so much, she, the yin and yang between her and young CT as she's trying to pull him out, get him interested in the classwork of what's happening. I don't feel as much of the pull from her. Mm-hmm. I feel him giving it in scenes and her, she's just kind of there, mm-hmm. you know, which then leads you to focus on the other major relationship in this movie, which is young CT's relationship with his other classmate, Tanya. Yes. Played by Barbara Ann Sanders. Yes. And the sweet little, you know, fourth grade romance that yeah. is bubbling up between the two of them. And it comes off as extremely sincere, it very sweet and tender, affectionate, um, and authentic yeah. in the way that it is developed and it is shown in this 1953 movie. So much so that... In being wrapped in that romance, it it's a thunderstrike mm. when it is suddenly cut short. Mm. I mean, because it is cut short pretty early into the movie. Soon as she start coughing, because we get that we all knows what it means in a movie. Oh, when a character just coughs once just start coughing but usually coughing once means that okay well by the end of the film right she may take a turn for the worse damn 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 not in bright road (laughs) because in bright road a cough at the 10 minute mark of the movie means by 15 minutes we're at a gravesite oh I'm like, whoa. Terrible. That hits you. And it hits you all the more because the director of this film, Gerald Mayer, plays that scene so beautifully Mm -hmm. in that you don't see a funeral. Yeah. All you see is young C.T. at the gravesite of this little girl start to say something and then doesn't say a word because he is just overwhelmed with his emotions terrible and the camera pulls out from him slightly on a little bit of a dutch angle at the gravesite and it's just wordless there's no music it's just this young boy reconciling with his feelings with not only the person that he actually was developing feelings for, but his truly only friend mm-hmm. that you see in this movie. This is the person who they develop. They went and talked to the birds in <laughs> in the trees. Yeah, yes, they did. It was a cute scene. It was a scene right out of Charlie Brown. I have man. a theory about that, but we'll get to that. You know, this is the this is the. The the young person that he introduced to his dog affectionately named Kamir. Because when when I say it. When, when I say it, he comes. He comes. I, I mean, I look, <laughs> I went into this movie thoroughly expecting this is going to be because I knew it was about this tear, this 
this teacher, you know, struggling to bring education to this young, troubled black youth. Yes. Um, so I expected, like, you know, oh man, we're 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 in for some some gritty nineteen fifties politicking here. Yeah, yeah. And race plays not a role in this film, except that it's a nearly all black cast. Yeah, except the white guy that you right, right, mentioned, right. the white doctor. Yes, but That's race. How you knew it was serious. Yes, but race is not a part a part of the story of this film. Yeah, at yeah, all at all. And that made this movie that much more endearing to me. That is, in fact, what drew Dorothy yeah, Dandridge to right. the property. That's right. You know, um, you know, she liked that it was a movie that wasn't about race, that it was just this sweet tale. And she wanted to be a part of that scene that brought to light. Um, it's a short film. It's only an hour and eight minutes. Yeah. So. It very much plays almost like the pilot for what could have That's right. and should have and quiet is kept still could be yeah. a very interesting series. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um it 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 works. It does it does work. Everything about this movie works. Um the kids everything works, Lynn. Everything about this movie works. Interesting. It does. And I know what you're alluding to, but before we go there, <laughs> I'm going to include <laughs> the children in this in this movie. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. You got uh you've got Boy Boyd and Lloyd. <laughs> two, twins. Two brothers, uh, twin brothers played by the McNeil boys, Howard and Robert. Um, you've got a young boy named um, Booker T. Jones of, <laughs> of all things. Yeah. You've got Rachel, Sarah yeah. Lee. Yeah. Um, uh, the kids in this movie uh, uh, are fantastic. George, the character of George, that's the guy with the little boy yeah, with, with the glasses. The glasses. <laughs> the glasses. There's one scene where all these boys are about to like go jump on um, CT, and you see like the, they're basically like 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 almost like they're jumping rope, like trying to get the timing. Mm -hmm. And George is like, oh, wait a minute, and he takes off his glasses Man. and put them down on the ground first. Yeah. I'm like, yo, that's real. Yeah, that's real talk, dude. Because in the earlier scene. He jumps in with his glasses. Right. And he's like, oh, learned I learned a lesson there. It's spot on. The chemistry is there. Yeah. This it, it, it just it just works. Um and yes, <laughs> Harry Belafonte, yes, in his debut <laughs> in this movie. This is his film debut this of Harry Belafonte, debut. ladies and gentlemen. He works in this movie because. He's not given much to do. He's given just enough to do. He's not asked to carry any heavy load. No. You know, no. along with the story. He's basically asked to quote unquote whip CT with his ruler. And even that's a very that's an awkward scene. It's a very awkward scene. Because you know, Harry. He doesn't exactly pull that off. I don't know if he's ever actually held a ruler in his hand. I don't before. think so. I don't know if he knows any children. No. I don't know if he's ever seen a desk. No. Yeah. No. But 
because he's given very little to do, he gets a pass from me. I'm not giving him a pass. You're not going to give Harry Belafonte a pass? Harry Belafonte, like you said, it's only an hour. So the real estate is precious in oh, this film. That, that is a point. That's a good point. And every time Harry Belafonte is on the screen, mm-hmm. bumbling, <laughs> fumbling around, he is like... Does he know which way the camera is pointed? There's one scene where he fumbles around looking for the pocket on his pants that just annoyed the hell out of me. I it really was like this really is his first role. Yes. It looks like the suit doesn't fit. <laughs> I don't yeah. I don't think he was the first first cast. I don't know if he's ever talked to people. Like he's talking to Dorothy. Like like I actually like Dorothy Dandridge in this film. And okay. part of the reason I liked her is because I think it's, and, and you know, you're an actor and you've heard actors say, actors always say, I don't want to work, work with animals no, or and children. I don't want to work with children. Mm-hmm. I think it's difficult to work with children. Okay. And I think she does well. I think she does well. In the classroom scenes. Mm-hmm. I agree with you that that CT is the real star, and and CT really has the the the, the weight to carry. Mm-hmm. But I think they have a good rapport. Maybe maybe it's because that that they have this motif of a voiceover with her. Well, I was about to say that the voice. But see, in my mind, the voiceover is evidence that the director didn't trust. Dorothy Dandridge. Okay. And they kind of added that to it. Because I, I completely agree with you that the voiceover is distracting mm-hmm. and I would say unnecessary. Very unnecessary. Because there are moments where the voiceover reveals her thoughts. And her thoughts. When she's saying, you know, she wants, but you can see it on her face what yeah. she wants. Yeah. So. Show don't tell. Show don't tell. But it, it, it's funny because Harry Belafonte is in maybe two or th- you know two or three scenes, and you can tell you're supposed to react to him, and they're they're kind of halfway making him the love interest, sort of. Yeah. But then there's a scene, and I almost feel like someone looked at the dailies and said, "Oh my God, we're gonna have to give him a guitar so he can sing or something." Yeah. And he sings a song out of nowhere. Right, and it makes it like no reason, like no reason sudden, whatsoever, except we have Harry Belafonte. All of a sudden, our principal is a troubadour. Let's have him sing something, right? But the kids are dynamite. Yeah, I, I loved the kid. Like I loved all of the kids, and and that is saying something. It is that is saying something because I agree with you. Not only does CT carry the load. But a great deal of this film takes place in this classroom mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. these kid actors. Yeah. And they do really well. I think it's a, it's a sweet movie. It's a very sweet it's, it's movie. It's a sweet movie. I, I do have to say there, I had gotten to the point maybe 20, 25 minutes in where I, I was saying, okay, the film's halfway over. Like you said, you read the the description. They say he's a problem kid, and you think, okay, well, that's going to be the the the, the great the, the great um, tension tension in the film. But it's alleviated pretty quickly. Yeah, where you can see they're sort of working at, and I was like, there's no real 
conflict here. Like I don't, and I was like, okay, well I can do an hour of this and there's no conflict and it's just a sweet movie. And then the little girl starts coughing. I know. I said, damn it. Here we go. There we go. There we go. But I like the kids. I thought it was a sweet story. I, I I like Dorothy Dandridge and I especially like Dorothy Dandridge. And this might not be fair to judge this performance, but knowing what Dorothy Dandridge was going to become okay, a year or, you know, a year Next later, year. a year later in Carmen Jones and then later in Porgy and Bess, where I have to admit, you know, A, I think I've seen this film before. Oh, really? But okay. I didn't notice it was Dorothy Dandridge. Yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't, wouldn't notice. She doesn't. It's not recognizable. Because B, when I think about Dorothy Dandridge. It's always as this femme fatale, as mm. as 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 this this persona. Mm-hmm. So to see her have this quieter role, I was impressed because, yeah. like you said, it's just one year later. Yeah, that she becomes Carmen Jones and mm. and breathes life into this larger than life character. So I gave her credit for for having that range mm-hmm. that I didn't know was going to be there. But yeah, I really like, and I was like you, I, by the end, I really wanted to see the next year. You want to see, you want to continue with the CT story. I, and, and with this class. With this class, but I, I say the CT story because there are a couple of scenes where you see CT in his, in his home life. Yes. With his family. And he's like one of nine kids. Right. With some old ass parents. Well, yeah, with very young kids. Yeah. Well, hey, look. Um, Guess they ain't old all the time. No. All right now. <laughs> it, but you wanted to see, I wanted to see a little bit more of that dynamic. Yeah. I wanted to see a little bit more of CT away from the classroom. He, he has this affinity with nature, you know, and. He, <laughs> well, yes. Well, he does. I mean, like, you know, he's, 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 he's literally, he's, he's literally the Lord of the Flies. I, I actually thought the conflict. For like three seconds, at one point, some bees, because he's a beekeeper, Mm -hmm. and some bees come into the classroom after he's gotten punished. And for like four seconds, I thought, did he summon the bees? Yeah, because you you, you didn't do it justice. (laughs) It's not some bees (laughs) coming to the class. It literally is a locust. Right. That comes into this class. I'm I'm looking for Charlton Heston and, to come around right. the corner. People are running. The kids are running. And they're hiding, and he's just sitting at the desk smiling. And he's just he just he's like yes, <laughs> yes. You won't put me in the corner anymore. <laughs> Guns me. Yes, exactly. And then. And then he literally like takes the queen bee. He's like, no, no, I take the queen. queen. And then there are bees all over his arms. And all of a sudden he turns into Candyman. I said, what is going on? (laughs) Why is this happening? But this is part of my longstanding theory. Oh, boy. Earlier when they were talking to the birds. Mm -hmm. And there's no sort of sort of inclination that this is unusual. Yes. They're just talking to the birds. And then he's got the queen bee in his hand and his arm, his bare arm is covered by bees. Yes. And there's no inclination that this is unusual. I've said for years, 
old timey black people were magic. So CT, they had superpowers. Okay, and we don't know about it now because you know we're like post civil. But old timey black people had superpowers. You ever talk to an old black dude or like old black people and they say like something crazy, mm-hmm. and they don't even really understand what they're saying is crazy. True. Hey, Big Mama, can you swim? Oh no, I can't swim. One time I fell out of boat. And I've went to the bottom of the lake, but I just walked on the bottom of the lake and came out until I could walk some more. That was all the swimming I needed. And that's the whole story. That's true. That's true. That's a good point. Granddaddy, how you get that scar on your arm? Oh, that's where my arm got cut off by the thresher. And when it grew back, it left that scar. Wait, what? What? Pass the salt. I'm telling you, CT was an old timey black person. So he could control bees with his mind. He didn't get stung. He can talk to birds. So do you think in Bright Road 2, Tanya comes back? Maybe. Could he resurrect Tanya? Maybe. He could. He could. You know, he could. I mean. Bright Road 2, Tanya's back. He could be. He could be. Like I said, I joked, but he could be Candyman. He Look. That scene was genuinely unsettling. He could be candy. And they kept showing his arm covered in bees. You know, they said that this was a rural black elementary school in Alabama. But for all we know, this could have actually been. In like Louisiana. That's where Candyman was, right? No, Candyman is Chicago. Chicago, right. Green. Yeah. Oh, man. Anyway. Going down this rabbit hole with you, Vince. I'm just saying. I liked, speaking of it being a rural black elementary school, I liked that window into elementary schools of the day. Um, You know, I actually kind of missed the time when the teacher taught everything. Yeah. You know, it wasn't, you know, regimented. Now you're going to this class, you're going to this class. The teacher taught everything all in that school. You kind of grew up yeah. with your with your classmates. Yeah. Um and she's teaching Sunday school. She teaches Sunday school. Like it as really well. is a community school. Yeah, yeah. And you know, everybody was expected to go to Sunday school. Yeah. You got dressed for Sunday school. You got dressed for dinner, for Sunday dinner. Um the one the the one quaint moment I that brought back so many of your memories was rest period. When yeah. the, the the kids, where you just lay your head on your, on your table and you just take a little nap, yeah, in the middle of class, and that brought back so mem- many memories. My, for me. my 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 son's daycare teacher actually told us two days ago he wants to talk during nap time, during rest time. Oh, he wants to be having conversations. Yeah, he just want to talk. I told his mother that's because you talk so much. Like he gets that from you. Y'all both a little chatty. <laughs> I ain't gonna let you do that. Y'all both, you you are chatty, Kathy. I've taken trips to New York with you, bro. You you can be a little bit of a chatty, Kathy yourself, yeah, bro. But yes, rest period is nice. Yeah, um, yeah. I really enjoyed this. I enjoyed this movie. It's a it was a nice movie. It's just, just a nice. It little was slice a of nice movie. little movie. It really was. It really, it really, really was. Um, it was a good time. It. it it's shame of it. It was not a successful movie. This movie had a budget of 
$377,000, which was very low budget yeah. for oh, yeah. its time. But it only made $252,000. Yes. So it was not a successful movie it, at, at it's all. Not, it's not an easy fit. I can understand how they couldn't really know how to market promote it. right and market this. Well, you certainly couldn't promote it down south with it being an all black cast, right? And then with it being such a slight little tale, right? Right. There's no real plot. Yeah, and it's kids. Yeah, yeah, and and it's probably I'm thinking like, could you market this to kids? Kids didn't have any money in 1953. Well, but kids went to the movies. Right. Kids went to the movies. It's an hour. This could be on before. But the thing is, for kids, it's not enough whiz bang. Right. For kids. Because it's a quiet film. Because it's a very quiet film. So then do you market it as a family film? And I don't know. I don't don't think this gets dad out, out of his seat. Right. You know, so I can see them having trouble. That's why it it should have worked as a television series and I think especially even still setting it in 1953 set it in a rural Alabama there, there's something to be mined with a bright road television series I agree you I know? agree I agree I felt I felt a little guilty because I kind of rolled my eyes when about, I said, announced yeah, that I was going to be going there going right? here but but this 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 was a really sweet movie yeah so you owe it to yourself, ladies and gentlemen. Well, I'm telling you, I recommend that you see yeah. Bright Road. I do too. You know, I do too. It's a, it's a, it's it. We were talking about this on the um, binge lounge. I don't think there are that many good child actors, mm-hmm. and this is a film with a bunch of them. Of a whole bunch of with them. a bunch of them. Yeah. Those twins cracked me up. Yes, yes, they, they do. They cracked me up every time. And again, back to Harry Belafonte bumbling and stumbling around. Every time there was a scene with him, I wanted to know where the kids were. Mm-hmm. I, I thought so. Um, Dorothy found a role for her her sister, Vivian, plays Ms. Nelson, one of the other teachers. Okay. In in the um, those some ba- they were some bad teachers. They had given up on CT. They had given they up. Had, they didn't want CT to have no lunch. I know. They were rough. They were rough. And I think that's probably why they were only there for one scene. And then <laughs> right. you forget there's other teachers like, in this. Y'all are terrible. Yeah, they were rough, man. I want the teacher that looks like Dorothy Dandridge. <laughs> rough. All right, so so we recommend that you see this film. Absolutely. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, before we tell you what's coming up next week on the Michelle Mission, we invite you all to give us a ranking and rating on the podcaster of your choice because that helps people find our show. Email us all your thoughts and concerns at mishowmission at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Mission. Join the Facebook group Mission, And if you can't find it, Michelle is spelled M-I-C-H-E-A-U-X. Let us know what you are thinking. Michelle Mission is available in a edited form as a radio show every Saturday at 1 p.m. on WPPM. Philly Cam People Powered Media here in the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection, 106.5 FM. And you can wake up with the Michelle Mission every Monday morning at 9 a.m. on 91.7 FM. 
WKDU, the voice of Drexel University. And our show is a proud member of the Podglomerate Podcast Network, the Podglomerate curated podcast for your listening pleasure. All right. Next week, as we uh, we soon will be beginning our countdown to 200, but next week is episode 172. 172. And it is Vince's turn it is again, to select our film. I felt guilty about judging your year so harshly, 1953. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to take your 1953. Yes. And I'm going to go to 1947. Vince is back in the way back machine. Way in the way back machine. A film about a fast talking manager, Nettie, who's going to help her band leader friend land a steady gig at the Brass Hat Club. But upon hearing the good news, the leader's girlfriend, Minnie, assumes that he and Nettie are having an affair mm-hmm. and hijinks ensue. Ida James plays Nettie. Jenny Lee Gone plays Minnie, and playing himself, Cab Calloway, Ooh. as Cab Calloway, in 1947's Hi-Dee-Ho. Oh, boy. Hi-Dee-Ho. I believe it is pronounced Hi-Dee-Hi-Dee-Hi-Dee-Ho. All right. Next week on the Michelle Mission. All right. I like that. Some vintage Cab Calloway. Vintage. Nice. Nice. Well, it's and, and welcome back to the Wayback Machine. Welcome back to the Wayback Machine. You know, I missed you. Also, now I've gone to 47. I don't know what you're going to do after 47. Well, see, you, you jumped it because I was figuring we're starting to count down at 175. You're doing 172. So I figured, okay, I've got two more stops to make mm-hmm. and i'm just going to keep making my stops because i got 173 and 175 and i've already got my film picked out for 175 i just have to pick out my film for 173 yeah you it's gonna be real old timey well yes you gonna stay, but you're gonna stay old timey maybe we work our way back appropriate up. Can we See, i know what i'm doing you work our way back all right oh appropriate oh how appropriate you shall see all right when you like to know wouldn't i like coming at my producer skills i'm about to show you something bro (laughs) let me learn you a thing or two but next week hi ho Next week on the Michelle Mission, ladies and gentlemen. Until then, he's Vince. I'm Len. And in parting, we say. We'll see you when it's time to meet again. It's time to bid adieu. It's been a pleasure knowing you. I'll see you when it's time to meet again.